My name is Becca McNeil. I'm a journalist and generally curious person wondering what's next for the group of folks affectionately known as the church. With sex scandals, megachurch meltdowns, and Trumpy troubles, are people giving up on Christianity? Or are there things worth holding on to? This is my podcast where we gather doubters, searchers, question askers, and healers to consider what's working and what's not in the faith traditions we grew up with. The goal isn't to find a new right answer or a how-to. The goal is to foster openness and curiosity, whether you believe it's time to build something new or burn something down. In this first season, we talk a lot about parenting. What do we want our kids to take with them? What do we want them to leave behind? We examine the role of parents, many of whom are grappling with their own spiritual questions as they walk with their children into this new day. That's why I had to cut out alcohol and sugar. Because <laughs> if I yeah. gave myself one or the other, we'd have a real problem. Yeah, I respect that. But I'm still going to maintain my sugar crutch for yeah. as long as I'm not drinking. Good for you. I Thanks. tried at the beginning of the pandemic to do this in 2022 years ago. And by I lasted two months into the pandemic. And then one day I broke it by literally drinking straight from a whiskey bottle and with a bottle of Ready Whip that I was just spraying <laughs> my mouth. One of the reasons that I, I decided to do an alcohol fast is that I think I was having sleep apnea. Yes. And so yeah. I thought, all right, I'm going to rid my system completely for a few weeks. And so initially I was like sleeping. I told Mikhail last week, I have three nights. So I have insomnia. I've had insomnia for 20 years, but I had like three nights in a row where I slept really soundly from 10 to six, which never happens to me. And I told Michaela, I felt like I was on drugs. I just could see everything so clearly and I could think clearly all day long. I was it's like, sleep is amazing. Yeah. And so I thought maybe that's the thing. Maybe that like alcohol really is giving me sleep apnea. Not that I was like drinking a ton of alcohol, but even just a mm -hmm. little bit was doing it to me. Yeah. Um, late at night, especially. But now I've had three or four days in a row of waking up like it. Yeah. In the four o'clock hour and I can't blame alcohol. So yeah. I, I don't know who to blame. Hormones, man. Like, That's a good time to introduce my guest. <laughs> my, <laughs> my guest today is Patton Dodd. He is the author of The Tebow Mystique, wow. one from the vault, My Faith So Far, and The Prayer Wheel. I have read The Prayer Wheel and used it extensively in my own prayer life. It is wonderful. I recommend it. His writing has appeared in the Religion News Service, Christianity Today, and some lesser known outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and The Atlantic. And he is, I'm going to let you say your title at the H.E. Butt Foundation. Sure. I'm Executive Director of Storytelling and Communications. Gotcha. It's hard to, it's hard for me to get all the words into people's titles. Storytelling is a strange word to have in a title, and so it always is a sort of a conversation starter or a awkward maker because <laughs> it's an odd word to have in a title. Anyway, it's like when you talk to the Silicon Valley people and they're like, "Oh, I'm head of ideas." You're like, "That doesn't mean anything." At least yeah, storytelling a little, is a real thing. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. It's a little overused. Anyway, I can make an I can make a case for it in my title, and this is not the podcast for that, but. I have done that. <laughs> you want to? This could be the podcast for anything. Okay. Because this podcast is about the new day that many people are hoping to see in faith and religion, if you will, Christianity. Basically, looking at a lot of the things that we are trying to move past, but taking a different look and looking at what do we want our new day to look like? What don't we want to take? What do we want to take? What's going to get us there? What do we want to have with us when the new day starts? And so obviously in many ways, new days are constantly dawning, but just thinking about what that means for you and what you hope that it looks like, what it has looked like personally in your life. And in this season of the podcast, assuming that there will be multiple seasons going 
because it's going to be wildly successful. Okay. We're looking at it in regards, especially to the parenting process, journey, adventure. Okay. Mostly because that's what my forthcoming book is about, but also because that I think helps people narrow the focus a little bit. It's a broad mm -hmm. term. What do you want your spiritual life to look like? But when you look at it in regard to how do you want to give something to your kids? What do we want to be? Who do we want to be as parents? Mm -hmm. That is really where I want to focus some of the conversations. But along that, along with that, there's just a lot to discuss as far as the people we want to be, because I think that is ultimately the parents we are. Yeah. I'm not one of those people who believes that you have kids and it suddenly makes you into a different kind of person. Yeah. I think if you were a selfish asshole before, you're going to be a selfish asshole. Oh, I, think, I think we can argue about this. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I agree with you. Oh, do tell. Let's dive right in with that. Oh, really? Is that where oh, we're yeah. starting? Okay. Let's start with an argument, Patton. I, I think having kids has absolutely been... Um, transformative for me and my character and sense of self. And I don't think that's a good reason to have kids. <laughs> Self-improvement project. Don't think it should be about self-actualization. But I do think if you, and I can't see how the experience of participating in the creation of another human being and then finding yourself responsible for that being to emotionally love and care for their psychological, emotional, spiritual support, but then also their material well-being. Mm -hmm. Like that just asks so much of you and how you respond to that ask. How can that not change you? Now, sure, if you were an ass, oh, wait a minute. Are we, is this, are we cussing? Or are we not cussing in this podcast? Do you know? Um, I, I have no rules. You can beep things if you need to. I, I guess, or I can just cut them out in my editing software, maybe. Okay. Are there I'll rules? Be, like, I, on <laughs> I don't know. Some podcasts <laughs> are like rated R and some podcasts are uh, rated G. Let's, I'll assume this is PG and be careful. Light swears. I was Please telling don't drop you, the C word. I was, <laughs> okay. You got it. I was telling you before that I'm tired. And as some people who are close to me know that when I'm tired, I lose my filter completely and, and, and I lose professionalism. So anyway, I'll be careful. I don't know though. Swearing as a journalist, I feel like is actually quite professional. Newsrooms yeah. are where I learned to swear. That's true. It's Wasn't a, a big like, swearer before that. It's a little bit like breathing as a journalist. It's just, yeah. 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 In any event, I think that sure to your point, like if you were, I don't know, unformed or immoral or whatever, like bad things were in you before you had kids. Having kids doesn't fix them necessarily. But I just think having kids like is an incredible like growth opportunity. But I think opportunity is the key word, sure. right? How I you think, respond to it is everything. Yeah. And if you go in thinking, for instance, these kids are about fulfilling me because my life is about being fulfilled because you fundamentally see yourself as the main character in more of a way than we all do. Yeah. You don't, you aren't changed by that. You just are doing a different activity. Yeah. And I think there are people who are also in good ways. There are people who are just naturally nurturing they didn't, kids didn't make them that way. They are that way. They would nurture a plant. They would nurture a friend. They would nurture a kid. That's true. But there's opportunities to grow if you take them. I am really unobservant and I am to this day, not a very observant person. My wife and my kids can tell you all about this, but I think I'm way more observant than I would otherwise be at this point in my life because of my kids. Yeah. Like they need like steady attention and close attention. They need to know that I am aware of them. They actually need me to be observing them when they don't know they need me to be like, I need to be mm -hmm. paying attention. My kids have been like, like a gymnasium for me to train in practicing, attending to people, mm -hmm. noticing them and like noticing things that they do, like patterns that emerge over time. My wife does that naturally. Like she can't turn that off, but I've had yeah. to learn to turn that on and develop it and nurture it. Yeah. And my kids have been training ground for that. And but, I could give lots of those kinds of examples. Yeah. But I think, again, using words like training ground and opportunity, I just, I can hear my mom saying about different people 
back in my 20s, like friends that we had or whatever. Oh, they just need to have kids. Like, oh, they'll, they're selfish now, but they'll, once they have kids, that'll change. And I was like, I don't know. I've seen a lot of my peers go from being self-centered 20 somethings to self-centered parents. Yeah. (laughs) And it looks different because yeah, there's some different activities that are required of you, but fundamentally just because you're attending to all those activities. I think the chant, the actual transformation is something you have to choose to engage. Like you're a thoughtful person. Maybe you're not an observant person, but you're a thoughtful person. And so I can see you seeing those opportunities as interacting with ways you need to change. Yeah. Not just boxes you need to check. Sure. Fair enough. (laughs) So parenting is change. I do. I agree that the opportunities to change are myriad. (laughs) Like the chances to say, oh, I can either suffer through this and grit my teeth or I can see it as a opportunity to grow and become, for lack of a better term, be blessed by it and celebrate it with them. Yeah. For sure. We can use this to segue into the book you're working on if you want to talk about it. I was actually about to say that part of the reason I responded the way that I did when you said about how um, kids don't change you or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's... I probably need to nuance that. Everybody's going to be like, that's completely not true. I I was, the reason I responded that way though, was that I was just telling my wife the other day that I was, so I'm writing this book that is in part of a memoir of fatherhood. And so I, I'll say more about the book maybe later, but I was working on a section about when our first kid was born in Boston in 2003. And I was just writing about that story. And I've been thinking about it for years, but I haven't really thought about it in the sense like of revisiting it and trying to re-narrate that. And as I was doing that, putting myself back in Boston, we were at Fenway Park the, the night before Michaela went into labor. And we have a good story around this, but reimagining it, I was like, I don't remember who that person was. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember what he was thinking. I don't remember what it felt like to be him, actually. Like, it is like I'm reading a Jane Austen novel about, mm-hmm. by which I just mean like an 18th century novel about like people that I've, that I can imagine, but I've never met. Because who I was then and what my priorities were and mm. what I thought I wanted out of life, what the person I was in relationship with back then and what she, who she was and what I th- what she wanted and what I thought it meant to support her or be her partner. Like all of that is so distant from who I think I am now that it's hard to reach. And hmm. so some of that's overstated because <laughs> obviously I'm the same person. Yeah. But I, I, I just know that if you would, if you could go to 2003 and visit Patton at Fenway Park the night before his kid's born and tell him in 2022, you're going to be living in San Antonio, Texas, which is probably <laughs> like the 48th state on my list of states I would ever want to live in back then. I just think I, my mind would be blown by who I'm, who I am and what I'm doing, not because I would be impressed, but just because it would be different from what I had anticipated. And I think sure. my, the experience of being a father is a lot of what produced that. And listener, you should know this, that Patton is truly one of the people I know who never lets a good opportunity to reflect go by. So I will stand by that. I think you probably have approached parenting in a way that's going to maximize that (laughs) just because you approach everything in that way. Like I worked in a newsroom with you and I saw you be more thoughtful about how we produced a one story a day website (laughs) than many people are about like huge national news stories. Truly like you're a thoughtful person who brings an element of reflecting into most activities. And I should bring my kids in here so they can hear you say these things. It's true. It's it's so it's sick of it. Smoke up your butt, I promise. Well, my, at the dinner table, my kids will be like, can we not talk about something you read today? <laughs> like, <laughs> they get so tired of it. <laughs> it's no one said it was an easy trait to have. 
yeah. Bliss will be like, I'm just, it's tiring right now. And I'm like, yeah, I have to be me. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I never yeah. get a break from me. I can't leave the room. But it does. So it doesn't surprise me that something that is as monumental and huge in your life rolled around inside your head like a giant boulder, not just a pebble, and made some changes for you. So as you're changing as a person, it's not just that you added kids and got less selfish and more attentive, and now you're just a more, you know, evolved and nurturing version. There's been some other big changes. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that, I think, is another element that parents who are going through those changes feel this pressure to hold something steady at times. Yeah. I know I have. I've had this feeling of, okay, I either need to get all of my, if you want to call it deconstructing, faith changing, slippage, whatever, done before we have kids. Yeah. Or wait until they're almost like p- parents who don't get divorced until after their kids graduate. Yeah. I think there's people who are like that with other parts of their life. Yeah. And it could be a job. It could be a real faith church it could be a relationship with certain family members yeah. that they need to cut out of their lives the obviously the group that i'm trying to talk, speak with is people who are feeling that shift in a religious or faith arena which is yeah. something that you have written about not as a parent i finished it while we were i think i finished it while we were still pregnant Versus the book that you're working on now that takes the parenting journey into account with how you've grown and changed. I'd be interested to hear the just thoughts on that thoughts on changing in your mind before that. And then all that's happened since and trying to do that in front of your kids with your kids for your kids. Yeah. I don't know. That's like the story of my life. So it's hard to know what part of that to grab onto and respond to, I guess at the center of my experience of the world and of myself is a continual search for some kind of spiritual center. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist home, but it didn't really take. And so I I wasn't sure I had any sort of sense of faith. I wasn't really thinking about it, like a lot of sort of teenagers. And then late, like early, late late high school, early college, I had at a charismatic church, a kind of night and day conversion experience. And then it took really hard. And I had about a year's worth of pretty fervent fundamentalist Christianity booming through me. And I loved it. And I felt like the, the world was rendered in both full color, but also black and white in terms of what I believed. You know what I'm saying? Like I could tell, I knew what I thought about everything the way a good fundamentalist does, but it didn't last. That stuff burns out, I think, most everybody, whether they admit it or not. It burned out in me in about a year. And then I was like, when the bottom fell out, I was in a free fall. Like, intellectually, philosophically, who am I? Existentially, for like a decade. And and near the end of that decade is when my first kid was born. So I, I was still falling, but I was experiencing the fall differently. So my kids were born into a world where their dad was like, I don't know. <laughs> What I believe, I've been trying to figure it out at this point for a long time. I went to actually get a like a religious studies PhD in order to figure it out, and that didn't help. Well, that's not true. It kind of helped. But it in and out of all kinds of churches and then became a journalist on religion issues and, and, and mostly like in multi-faith environments. And so I was obsessed with religion and churches as a, I don't know, like sociologically and, a, and then as a journalist and writer and just constantly curious about them. For a while, it was like angst. I want to know which of these things is the right path. And once that stopped, it was just more like fascination. Like I just find these spaces, like congregational spaces, endlessly interesting. And so I would go into and out of Catholic churches and Lutheran churches and Presbyterian churches and charismatic churches and you know, black churches and Hispanic churches. And I did that on my own. And then I did it with my kids and, and they've grown up in a home where that kind of, whether it's a search or just a persistent curiosity has always been part of what dad is up to. I have an 18 year old, a 15 year old and a 12 year old girl, boy, girl. And the jury is out, I think for sure on how all this will land with them ultimately and how they feel about it all. But they've just been along for the ride. 
in some sense of me taking all this stuff really seriously, but not knowing quite where I'm situated in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been hard for them in some ways and good for them in other ways. And we're always talking about that and weighing it, I think, as a family. There's two things in what you just said that I want to hear more about. One, you said when the angst about the angst about what's right, what's the right place to land when that stopped and you got curious, what switched that? Because curiosity is definitely one of those features of a self-actualized person Mm. (laughs) in the openness and the curiosity rather than like a consuming anxiety and need to find an answer. What helped you Mm. go from one to the other? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. I think there's a few things. One is just age. Like my 20s were pretty awful. I was just stuck in my head all the time. And confusion was like something I felt in my body. I just, it was painful and I could not turn off like the machinery in my brain from constantly feeling confused about all this stuff and not, and I read everything I could read and talked to everyone I could talk to as an academic and then as a journalist, but I couldn't yeah, I couldn't get back to that clarity that I'd had at 19 when I was fundamental. I think that's what I was. Lo- I think I was longing for that clarity that I had had. It felt so good to know where I stood on things. Is there a God, and did Jesus rise from the dead? And you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And once I lost I that, and once I lost that, I just I wanted it back, and I couldn't quite get it. And so I experienced that as yeah, painful. And as I got older, I think that pain lessened in some sense because I began to experience the questions as less. I don't know, threatening. And more is just interesting. And I'm not sure why exactly, which is why I'm just saying I grew a little bit. I think that part of it, though, was that I, both in my religious studies work as an academic and then as a journalist working on religion, I talked to so many interesting people from different religious backgrounds, both a broad Christian spectrum, but also other faiths. And many of them were healthy people who had, they seemed to have, they were well put together in one way or another, no matter what their background was. And I just couldn't deny that evidence after a while that there, you can arrive at a wholeness and at a healthy life in a lots of different ways. And I, that would, for whatever reason, that was news to me. It seems obvious to me now. <laughs> when I was right. <laughs> in my 20s, early 30s, that was news to me. I felt like there ought to be a way. And part of a, establishing certainty in a pluralistic world if you're ever going to be exposed to those people creating the us, them dichotomy and they have to be wrong and there has to be something wrong with them, that they would have been exposed to the truth and not come to agreement with you. So I think part of establishing that certainty as good as it feels is you have to somehow pathologize everybody who doesn't share it with you. Otherwise, how if everybody has the same, capacity to know and understand and decipher the world. What are the odds that I got it right? Right. I remember wrestling with that from a young age thinking like one of the few things that ever shook my very much certainty based faith life pre age 28 was the thought of like, how did I get so lucky that I was from age four, like the only faith I've ever known is the exact right one. (laughs) And I'm a lucky girl. (laughs) Yeah. And then immediately following that would be a, that sounds too good to be true. And you would ask for an explanation of it. People would have, there's all these explanations for why that is. And most of them are pathologizing the people who didn't agree. It wasn't that you were lucky or that you were special. It was that there was actually something wrong with them. Yeah. Following that same thread of growing up with certainty, as I very much did, grew up in the PCA, which is the most certain group of people (laughs) in, in the room. I have come to look at that as almost like when Paul talks about maturity and like, (laughs) we used to say that like the Billy Graham version of the gospel was the milk gospel and we were chewing on the meaty gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have started to see it differently to where Mm -hmm. I feel like that certainty and that black and Mm -hmm. white thinking was my training wheels or almost my like crutch 
that helped me to like that got me through immaturity mm-hmm. and that getting to a place where you can un- embrace uncertainty is actually requires much more maturity mm-hmm. and that the meat, if you're going to, that's the milk. <laughs> the easy part is the black and white not head knowledge stuff. And that the meat of it is this very gnarly loving others. Like if yeah. we take that seriously, it's actually much, much more difficult than knowing some things. I think this is why there are parents that are really good at talking about little kids with faith, but not older kids with faith when questions get more complex. And then there are parents, I was terrible at talking about faith with my little kids because they needed black and white, clear mm-hmm. answers, yes or no, a simple stories, simple solutions. And I didn't have those to give. And I'm much better at talking to my older kids about faith because they're up for ambiguity. And I think that, but a lot of parents have it flipped and they're really good at clarity, like Sunday school clarity. And then when their kids are ready for harder questions, they haven't maybe developed the capacity to think about those. And that's when kids are frustrated with faith and peace out. I think so. Yes. To your point, I do think that there is a certain, a milkiness to wait, is it milk? Yeah. A milkiness Mm -hmm. to certainty and a a solidity to ambiguity, which is ironic, but I think that's right. It's felt that way. It has felt like this is requiring so much more maturity and so much more intellectual and spiritual work in the good sense, not in the like hard labor sense, but in the, all of the things that I was, I think the things that I was told were about working out the sin in my life, like trusting God and dying to self and all of those things that used to be about, oh, just trying to live a pure life. And then, but the truth part's very certain and that part's very black and white. And then the difficult work is just this labor of trying to perfect yourself. All of that is flipped. And now the work is this more freeing. It's a more free work because there's not condemnation hanging in the balance, but the dying, like the taking up your cross and all of that stuff means something very different when in looking at it in relation to restoration and healing and repair in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more interesting. Yes. It's so, and it's a, a joyful work. And then the maturity and the stuff that I have to be ready for is the being able to see God in others, the open, being okay with uncertainty, all of that kind of Richard Rohr stuff is, it feels like it requires much more of me than memorizing Tulip and its proof verses. Yeah, no, it is a hard ask. That's true. It, it is, it does require thoughtfulness and kind of developing comfort with ambiguity, comfort with discomfort. Mm-hmm. That's, that is hard. But I think that the other reason that I was able to, or have been increasingly comfortable with questions, unanswered questions, is that I got in touch with the source of my shame. Because I think that a lot of the questioning and the and the angst that I felt, is it angst or angst? You said you corrected it before. Well, it, I think it can be either. Okay. It's tomato, I, think lot, I think it's almost exactly tomato, tomato. I think that a lot of, for me, what the, the confusion that I was talking about that I felt in my body was actually shame. Like I just, I felt bad about questioning. I felt like it was wrong and sinful and that there was something wrong with me. I had lots of friends who knew where they stood on things on both on, on various places in their, in the landscape of religion or ideas. And I, yeah, I really didn't. And I felt, I think, deep shame about that. And it was like, I think when I did work on that, which was basically talking to a therapist when my dad died, like when that, when I started, that wasn't expecting that's what that would be about, but it ended up that that work helped ease all this stuff around religious questioning. It's so interesting because I do think so many people have been trying to use religion, the structures of religion and what people like Angela Parker called bibliolatry, I think like seeing the Bible as this, the, the inerrantist, like absolute truism of the Bible being trying to cure something that is psychological 
Like yeah. so many people who go to therapy and find the thing that Jesus just wouldn't ever give them. Mm-hmm. Because you have to then ask the question of what was the purpose of what Jesus was giving us and what the Bible is in the world yeah. and all of that. Because I think so many people are using the wrong tool to heal the wrong wound. <laughs> or There's yeah. a mishmash between what we're trying to do. Because just no matter how many times people have told me, for instance, God loves you no matter what. Grace is unmerited favor. God, it, it never scratched the wound of, I have to perform in order for people to like me and take care of me. Yeah. No matter how many times... I tried to make Jesus's unconditional acceptance of me or whatever, heal that deep attachment wound that I have. It's not really doing it Hmm. because I don't think that's what it's trying to do. I think there's other things that can, that need to happen as well. Maybe that work that you needed to do is actually the work of Jesus (laughs) happening in a different way than you anticipated or than they might've it just didn't look. The son of man never looked the way that, that people thought he was going to, right? That's, I mean, that's a good exactly. point. That's probably the better truth. Yeah. It's not that <laughs> Jesus wasn't going to speak to those wounds. It just wasn't going to be the way. And through the special mechanism that we set up for him to do that. Through, the, through your church or PCA doctrine, it, it needed to come at you in a different form or fashion, but it's still in, in its ultimate essence could have actually been God. have Moira back here with me for another intermission with Moira. Yes, a Moira mission. When you pray, what do you pray for? Hoping that my family all survives with me and that sweets are all healthy. Oh, that would be such a dream world, wouldn't it? If sweets were totally healthy, what would you eat the most of? Donuts. So if donuts made you healthy the way broccoli does, how many would you eat? I try to buy my tin every day. What kind of donuts? Regular? Glazed? Cake? Glazed. Chocolate? No chocolate. Sugar glazed. Sugar glazed. Do you have any questions for me? I have a joke put into question. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange you. Orange you glad I'm your kid. I so am. You're the best. we're talking new day it is tempting as it is to just leave it all behind when it's been hurtful yeah you've said i've heard you say like you just can't quit church or you can't quit praying i think was your thing and curious about church what then is the thing that's making me want to take this forward into this new day and into my spiritual life moving forward and i think you're exactly right it's that God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit did something in spite of the inadequate structures yeah. <laughs> that we were yeah. That's fascinating. Another th- thing that came up while you were talking is how, and I'm thinking about this because as a journalist right now, I'm mired in the book banning debacles and which your kids' schools are in the middle of, I know. And how that temptation to maybe give our kids a, a picture of faith or a construction of faith that we're 
not totally certain about ourselves or that we're to be more certain with them than we are ourselves. Mm -hmm. And to get uncomfortable when that no longer works for them as well is a lot of parents really don't want to see discomfort in their kids yeah. His discomfort right. looks dangerously close to a lot of things that we're afraid of. Yep. And as someone who's seen, I think you have done that. You have seen that discomfort and I've talked with you and Belle about it and would love to, you know, get you to talk a little bit about the, <laughs> what's your reassuring word for parents <laughs> huh. who are so well, afraid of seeing their kids discomfort? Mostly it's just like solidarity. It is really hard to see. I get it. I hate, seeing my kids uncomfortable. I hate not being able to give them clarity that they want or certainty that they want, but I can't give them what I don't have. And I have had to just grow in my capacity for sitting with them in their discomfort because I can do that. I can't make up a false answer. I'm sure parents do that. Like Santa is real, <laughs> but <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I'm also not good at that. I've yeah. tried you know, I've, my wife and I battle over this. We have different, I think, ethics when it comes to how much truth gets revealed at what time, at what age. And We never um, did Santa, and it bit us in the butt. And yeah. dear boy, because Moira <laughs> shared that information with her whole preschool class. Yeah, yeah. We were not uh, the most popular parents. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, that's actually a relevant story here, because my daughter, Belle, my oldest daughter, she was, I'm not sure how old she was. She must have, we did do Santa. And we were all in on Santa and I love Christmas. And, and so, yeah, we were enjoying that. We didn't have like much means, but like the magic of Santa and all that was really fun. But when she was, I don't know, six or seven, she was really young. She pressed me on it really hard. And then, so this was on a Sunday. It was actually Easter Sunday. The day before we had a different conversation about some other topic. I don't remember what it was about. But somehow it ended up with me telling her, I am not going to lie to you, Belle. Like, I'm going to, if you ask me about something, I'm going to tell you the truth about that thing. And it was on, it was not on Santa or God or anything, mm -hmm. you know, any ultimate meaning. It was on whatever, something else. What are we having for dinner or whatever? But we had had almost an argument about it and I had to persuade her, you can expect the truth from me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we had a conversation about that. So the next morning... We're getting ready for church and it's, it's Easter Sunday and we're getting ready to go to church and then to like a family dinner at in-laws house with cousins and all that. We're going to be there. And Belle, as we're getting ready, she said, hey, dad, remember how yesterday you told me you would never lie to me? <laughs> I've and got I, a list yeah. of questions. <laughs> is, is the Easter bunny real? Oh, and I was like, Dude, that was easy. And I, for whatever reason, I didn't see what was coming, but I was like, oh, Easter bunny's not yeah. real. No problem. No a weird tradition, actually. No big deal. Yeah. And she's like, okay, what about the tooth fairy? And I was like, no, that's not real either. And that's easy too. I didn't, that's not crushing anyone's spirit. To, she was like, okay, what about Santa? And I was like, oh, crap. Oh my God. She set you up so perfectly. She knew what the she was doing. The future is a journalist in a big yeah, way. Yeah, she is an inquisitive person. And yeah. this has been my lifelong experience of her. And so I, I said, okay, Belle. And I like got down on a knee and looked her in the eye because I knew this was going to be hard. And I was like, okay, I reminded her she asked for the truth or she, she reminded me again. And so, yeah, I told her, okay, no, there is no Santa Claus. That's me and mom. And she said, okay, that's, that's okay. That's what I thought. <laughs> and then we went to this Easter dinner with all her cousins. We didn't really have much emotion about any of this, but on the way home from the Easter dinner in the back seat, she started weeping and we were like, what's wrong? And she said, there's no Easter bunny. And we were like, we know. And we didn't think you cared. Mm. And she said, I, I didn't think I cared either. But when I was with my cousins and they were talking all afternoon about what the Easter bunny gave them, I knew that they didn't know that there is no Easter bunny. And I couldn't tell them. And so all afternoon I had to pretend that what they believed is true, even though I knew it wasn't. And that was crushing to her. And I was like, oh, my God. Gosh, that is a deep, that is like to be with people that you love and they believe something that you know is false, but, mm -hmm. it's, but they're enjoying it. And so yeah, you don't want to reveal it to them and the tension that makes you feel. So yeah, she was experiencing all that at whatever age that was, six or seven. So clearly and Belle's like, a shallow puddle too, just like her dad. 
She is fantastic. And it doesn't surprise me at all that she didn't break the news because Moira, my daughter's personality is such that she's, I can't let you live in this lie. (laughs) I must set you free. (laughs) She's more like her mother. (laughs) A little more. I should say Belle told her little brother. She just didn't tell like the general public. She told her little brother. She's I can't let you live this lie. Lewis does bedtime every night now. But when he was first taking that over, there was this like changing of the guards where it went from like me doing bedtime every night to him. And one of the first times that he did it in the new regime, I like, okay, I'm going to leave. You're in charge. I'm going to run downstairs and get my stuff and I'm going to go for a walk. And I run, forget something, and I run back upstairs. And Moira, in the time it has taken me to run down and put on my shoes, Moira is bawling. She's just devastated. <laughs> and I poked my head in, and there's just this, like, how did this go so wrong so quickly? <laughs> and he was like, Lewis's eyes are as big as saucers. And she goes, unicorns aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> so... What's interesting about that, though, for her about Pokemon, unicorns, Santa, everything that she wants to be real. Both of my kids, like they know it's not real, but there is this part of them that wants to find a way that it is real. Mm-hmm. They, Moira says, maybe if I'm a scientist, I can invent Pokemon. Maybe I can make them real. And Asa will just keep asking me if Santa's real. Asa's younger. And he will just keep asking me, is Santa Claus real? And I'll say, well, it's a fun tradition that we do. And mommy and daddy get you a gift. That's the Santa gift or whatever. And he's like, no, but is he real? I'm like, he really was this. Mom, is he real? And I'll say, no. The Santa that you see on TV is not real. And he'll say, I know that, but I think there's some way. There's some way. <laughs> And it's it's an interesting thing to observe. I don't really do anything with it, but it's interesting. And then Moira at one point told us she wanted to go to Australia because she thought maybe their unicorns would be real. <laughs> so there's just this ongoing. Yeah. But it's made me think that answers for kids don't have to be final Like they don't need them to be a final answer. They're okay with the answer of for now, you know, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's made me start to think about answers as more like stepping stones for them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I guess that make that, I think that makes a lot of sense. You give them as much as I guess you think they can handle at a certain time and you give them as much as you think they need based on, your understanding of who they are at that time. Of course, I guess we do that with kids in all kinds of ways about the world. We reveal it as we need to. I like though, I like this notion. I think this, I think what your kids do with unicorns and Santa, that's just what I do. Mm -hmm. I don't, there's all kinds of things that I can't contend with and don't believe and can't accept, but I keep going on with things like prayer because I want to, and I want the my imagination is still open to that and i like that and so i'm gonna put i think unicorns in australia too like in that in that Mm -hmm. way i think that's my way of doing of being able to get say get work my way through the apostles creed on the sunday yeah i was as you were talking those two things the we use the word performative wrongly mostly Mm -hmm. socially right now performative actually speech is actually speech that brings a thing into being. Mm -hmm. And I think there's times when Asa is asking me, is Santa Claus real? That I will think yes, in the sense that we are talking about him now, like he is a real Santa is a real entity in our world that we are contending with. Yeah. So whether or not he is an embodied human being who delivers presents. No, but Santa. Yeah. Is in a sense real. And like Moira's, maybe I can make Pokemon real. Like she cartoons right now. She draws endless cartoons of the Pokemon doing the things she wants. And I'm like, in that sense, I do think personally 
that God is real in a different sense than someone drawing a Pokemon cartoon. (laughs) Make that very clear. (laughs) (laughs) However, there is something to be like that the process of seeking that the process of creating that the discussion that you're having, that is all what builds Mm -hmm. maybe not God, the being or the presence, but definitely the experience of God. Like what other way do we have to experience God than what we're doing and creating and talking about and praying and feeling and being in church? Mm-hmm. Like there, what else is there mm-hmm. for us to know? So I'm with you. I think the kids are on to something. I got to talk with you and Belle interviewing for the book. Mm-hmm. And it was so fascinating to hear because she is an adult now. <laughs> She's in college. It was yep. just fascinating to hear where it had all come out for her. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, she's still going to be in transformation for the rest of her life, just like the rest of us. But at the point where she leaves your household and to some degree, you lose the opportunity to have these conversations in your home. Was it fascinating to you at all to see where she had landed? Yeah, she sounded like an evangelical in ways that I didn't anticipate at all and that I don't think are part of our house culture. And she we had some evangelical like her earliest experiences of church were evangelical and we lived in Colorado Springs of all places. And so <laughs> it was in the water and air and we went to evangelical churches while we, while we lived there. And, but that we left there in 2014 and haven't been in an evangelical church since, but I work for a faith-based Christian organization that runs camps and retreats and the camps are more evangelical than, than, than not. And she has gone to those for two weeks every summer for, I think she went four years. And then she's been a counselor at the family camp this last summer. And I think that's part of what has influenced it. I also just think that she, in as much as she has been drawn to any kind of religious media, which isn't a ton, but she, some podcasts and some books over the years, I think it's probably trended evangelical because that's the stuff that's kind of most popular and rises to the top of everyone's algorithm. And so I think that's all influenced her. So yeah, she had more of an, like that if you gave her like a faith assessment test or doctrinal test of any kind, I don't think she would come out scoring very high on the evangelical spectrum, Mm -hmm. but her language is evangelical in terms of the way she talks about the Lord and even some of her kind of faith practices and her prayer practices being very extemporaneous and that kind of thing. But yeah, that was interesting to me. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really know that. It's in um, the book. I, also in the book is the fact that when she said it, you and I both, I, we were on a Zoom screen when Elle <laughs> says, when I was speaking with the Lord, and so I could see both of our eyebrows just shoot up, kind of like, who is this yeah. Lord? <laughs> yeah. The baggage isn't there. The reason right. so much, so many people don't use that language is because we have baggage that is. That's right. Yeah. Not because there's anything we necessarily oppose. No, she doesn't have, she doesn't feel like those words that I have a hard time using those words, even if like, I like the word Lord, but I have, I struggle to use it because of all the resonance it has with different cultural attitudes and things. And even though I, I would love to recover it, but Belle doesn't have, yeah, you're right. She doesn't have any of that baggage. She uses it freely. And I think yeah. that's really beautiful. Yeah. I was talking to Daniel Silliman for a different podcast episode. Are you familiar with his work? Mm-hmm. He, did you see his latest about the history of the founding of Christianity today? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. The, it's brand new, and the title is An Evangelical is Anyone Who Likes Billy Graham. Mm. And it's about the formation of evangelicalism as a social religious movement and how he rejects that Bebbington's quadrilateral is the foundation. Mm. He said that's something that was applied afterward to describe most of what people who called themselves evangelicals believed, Mm -hmm. but it was never criteria. And like, it's a movement. His argument is that the only way you get kicked out of evangelicalism is to leave it yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That nobody can, there's no authority. So nobody can actually tell you you're not, it's something you either claim for yourself or you don't, which makes Bell's use. Like when you say, on a faith test or in an assessment in some ways there isn't an assessment like she would probably not fit into 
a Baptist Southern Baptist framework or PCA framework or anything like that. But in some ways her identification with the Christian organization you work for or the degree to which she claims those as her people makes her one. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I buy that. That would be very surprising to her, but I understand what you're saying. And I think that it's up, it's up to her because on the, at the same time, you see a lot of the other things that evangelicals are doing. You're like, no, I'm not going to claim that. Tell me about your spiritual life now, like church, how you, where you place yourself in practice and community. Well, I just became an elder at, <laughs> at, at our church, which is, I love saying, cause it's, I, it made you laugh. It makes everyone laugh. Who I've told this so far. It makes me laugh too. Yeah. I'm an elder. I'm an elder at San Antonio Mennonite church. It's a two year commitment and I just signed on last month. So I have 23 months to go and see if you can hold that rumination <laughs> at bay. I had a phone call. I had a phone call last weekend with someone who goes to our church about her work and some challenges she's facing. And she called me on a Friday and we talked about it for a while and it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. She texted me a few days ago saying, wow, that conversation was really helpful to me and thank you. And I'm like acting on some of the things that we talked about. And I was like, oh, that's me like functioning in my capacity as an elder for the first time. It was really great. You eldered. Um, Yeah, I eldered. So I go, yeah, we go to San Antonio Mennonite Church, which is a very small congregation in downtown San Antonio. I don't know how many people go there, a few dozen, 50 or so, maybe on the regular, maybe 80 or so people would say they belong to it. It's a church whose central ministry is caring for asylum-seeking people who come across our southern border and end up in San Antonio a lot and need, need care and hospitality. So we have a a house called La Casa de Marte Maria, where families are hosted on the regular, and we have other ways of doing hospitality and caring for them, mostly short-term stays. And that's like what the, ch- the church does other things too, but like that is that is what I was, I read about their work in the paper for years, like off and on for a few years after I moved here, just they would pop up anytime immigration was like in the local news, which is a lot. And I've written about the, them. I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I kept seeing their pastor quoted and at one point, I don't know, in 2018 or 19, <clears throat> I, I went just to sit on the back row. I was saying, talking before about all the churches that I went to on my own and or with my kids and family and wife. And it was often once or twice. And it was often out of curiosity, sometimes to write about them and sometimes just out of my own kind of curiosity. And San Antonio Mennonite Church was just going to be another one of those. And if you had told me three years ago that I would be attending there, much less being an elder there, I definitely would have thought you were off your rocker. And, but yeah, we went. And in fact, the Sunday that we went, it was just me and Belle the first time we went. And on the way there, she was telling me that I'm really tired of this thing that you do. I don't know why I'm going with you this morning. Like, I I think this needs to stop. (laughs) of like just going to a a church and never going back. Don't you think this is weird? And this is a conversation we've had 50 times. And so we were talking through it again. And I was telling her, I just think this is always going to be the way I am. I don't know that I'll ever identify with a church again enough to really stay. And I have community. I, ha- I even have kind of a faith community in because of my network, my national network of the places we lived okay. and people I've worked with and people I stay in touch with. And so and I knew it wasn't great for my kids or my family, but I don't know. That's a that's another podcast episode about why I did that for so long. But anyway, we went to this church, and I was. I don't have anything to do this evening, so if you just want to talk, <laughs> about it, go ahead. I'm all ears. Okay, we just had a couple of minutes. I just I didn't want to go on and on, but I'll just say that Sunday we went, and I yeah, I just I was captured by what I saw and experienced, and I don't even know how to talk about it. It's not like it was a revelatory experience. It was just like, man, this is in touch with something that I recognize as Jesus. Like it, it was an embodied mm-hmm. presence of simple faith convictions that were oriented towards awe of, I think, a love and a, a creative love at the center of everything, but also oriented towards caring for people in, in, in need and being truly welcoming. And I don't know. I just was like, wow, this is interesting. It's it, in the church is it's really small. It's really, it doesn't announce itself in any way. And 
The music is, I think, really sweet. There's a Mennonite hymnal that we'll go to sometimes, and that stuff is awesome. Really? Like the Mennonite lyrics <laughs> are like <laughs> for real rooted in the experience of the downtrodden. So that was part of what I was captured by was the hymnody. But then it's also like Maranatha or whatever. Lord, I lift name on high sort of stuff. Yes, that stuff too. And just a person with a guitar and maybe someone beating on something. And yeah. it's gotten actually a little more advanced in the last couple of years. I think there's two guitars, maybe even a cello sometimes. And also this, the, the congregation shifts a little bit from week to week because we're hosting families from usually from Central America or Western Africa, and those people filter in and out. And mm -hmm. so the congregation looks different, but a little different every week, depending on who's there and who's in town. But anyway, yeah, I was just captured by it and got to, started getting to know people there. We, we kept going back. First, it was just me, sometimes me and Belle, and then my wife and kids came with me every now and then. And then, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, we all, like my whole family leaned in. And my wife is now really involved in a way helping with, she's, she's studying to become an architect and also as an interior designer. And she's helping with like church interior stuff. It's a really old, beautiful mm -hmm. historical building that needs a lot of work. And she's assisted with that and with the hospitality house and how it's designed and how people are hosted in terms of the setting. And that's really wonderful to see because we've been on very different journeys this whole time. I haven't talked about her at all, but like I had to, one of the things that I had to do in all this was come to terms with the fact that I'm in an interfaith relationship and that every marriage is an interfaith relationship as my spiritual director very helpfully said to me a couple of years ago. Say, say more it, about that, please. I've always wanted Michaela and I to be on the same page, but it, it's hard when I'm not on a page and <laughs> she's comfortable. I think she's more confident in who she is and what she believes and needs and doesn't need from church and is searching less maybe in that sense, but is also fine to, I don't know, at some level, I think she could probably take it or leave it and maybe mostly leave it. I think I wanted to pull her along with me at times. And my when the Mennonite thing started happening, it was mostly me and I was really wanting to lean in. And she was, I don't know, not cold towards it, but just neutral and certainly not interested. And so I was wrestling with that. And I had been in different you know, elements of our life where this kind of stuff is concerned for a long time. And a good friend of mine, who's also a spiritual director, said to me one time, every marriage is an interfaith marriage. And you recognizing that I think will help you be okay with being in a different place than she is. And you need to do what you need to do, whether she wants to do it or not. And you need to uh, let her have the room she needs to have for whatever she's doing and not doing. Mm. So stop making this part of what you're wrestling with. Yeah. And yeah. It was really liberating for me. And so I decided- One I more layer of angst. Oh. Exactly. And I just stopped pushing her on it. But eventually she leaned in on her own. And now I think we're both, yeah, happy members of this community that we really love and that has been a really kind of transformative influence in our lives. And and I'm an elder. <laughs> <laughs> I know that when I left the church, I left in 2012 to year Two years later, I was sitting in my counselor's office, got me into counseling for the first time. And I just said, I want nothing to do with these people, this institution. When people use Jesus y language, I have a visceral, like, full body shudder. I don't want to tell anybody about my life because I'm terrified that they'll ask if they can pray for me. <laughs> I had all yep. of the things, all. And what I realized now is that the journey of the journeys of doubt versus the journeys of hurt they often overlap and intersect and stuff i am wondering if some of michaela's hesitance or whatever take it or leave itness has to do with wounds from past church experiences yeah we definitely have that story too like in some ways our whole relationship story is rooted in this stuff because we married, we, we met in a college ministry at Colorado State University and we fell in love in that context. And I think that we both thought that meant we had a similar take on God. And even though I was faking my way through because my existential crisis had begun and it just, it was like, 
I was just keeping it a little bit at bay in mm-hmm. order to be in this college ministry. With this cute girl. We, yeah. And I was falling in love with this girl who was part of it. And then we got engaged and I graduated before she did. I graduated in, in May and she was going to graduate in December. And I had to find a job because we were going to get married. Our plan was to get married like the week after she graduated. We got married on New Year's Eve. And so I was looking for a job for us to start our lives together. And the job that I found was as a ghostwriter for a megachurch pastor named Ted Haggard. Bum, bum, And so I took this job excitedly. I get to be a writer and I get to be a writer for this pastor that I trusted. That's where I became a Christian was at Ted's church. Wow. When I said I had a day conversion experience earlier, it was at his church. And so I was like, this is the one place that faith had ever really made sense to me. And now I get to go back there and actually write for this person. And so I was, I got this job and I took it just excitedly when it got offered to me and I didn't really talk to my fiance about it. And then I, I went back to Fort Collins and she came over to my house where I was already starting to pack my car, my Jeep Wagoneer. Oh. She was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I got a job and we're going to be living in Colorado Springs after we get married. And she was like, what? <laughs> you did what? We're living where? So this was the first terrible thing that I did as, as a husband. To Husbands be. everywhere like, going, oh. Yeah. Decided to move that we were going to move where we're going to live and that we're going to move before talking to her about it. But I was just like, we needed a job. I needed a job. I like, how else are we going to survive? I had actually been looking for a job in Fort Collins for months and couldn't find one. So anyway, what this really meant is that not only were this was 98. Okay. So not only were we going to be living in Colorado Springs instead of Fort Collins, but we were going to be having to go to New Life Church, a mega church, and she had no interest in being part of a megachurch. And she didn't know how much that had been a part of my story and how much of my faith I had loved being there when I had first found faith there. And her parents in particular were pretty adamantly opposed to anything charismatic. Interesting. And speaking in tongues and the gifts of the spirit and all that was like anathema. He, that was kind of an explosive moment during our engagement. And we contemplated once we really started digging in what does this mean what is this church what do they believe and her dad really wanted to press me on these things as well he was like you need to read i don't know montgomery boyce or someone like that and listen to rc Sproul." and he was like charismatic chaos by john MacArthur." yes he was like pushing that kind of stuff on me and wanting to have conversations about it and we would read like about the gifts of the spirit and first Corinthians together and debate it while we were engaged and talk about, is this, is our disagreement here profound enough that we should break up and not get married? Oh man. And this was the conversation we were having. She, and I was like, you just need to come to church with me and meet Ted and then you're going to love it. It's going to be great. So then she came to church with me while we were engaged one Sunday and it's a big place. People are dancing in the aisles. She did not love it. And we went, to the front afterwards and we met Ted and she didn't love him the way that I thought she was like, I don't know. He seemed, well, I don't know. That's all. I don't really want to talk about that right now, but it yeah. was like, it was awkward and it was awful because I had already taken the job, was very excited. And in fact, I think Ted said something like that. We're so glad God has called Pat into new life. And she was like, we'll see about God, that. Yeah. I, what, wh- which God are you talking about? So we were in, we were distraught over that. And obviously it was like a wound. I think it was probably the first wound that I made in our uh, marriage. And it's taken, it took a long time for that wound to heal because then once we got married, we had to be there every Sunday and it was not a good place for her. It was not a healthy place for her spiritually. Mm -hmm. It probably pushed her to question and pushed her away more than not. And we made good friends there. But all the friends we made there saw the world and faith in a similar fashion, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we definitely didn't. And ultimately, I found out that I was more like her than I was that world. And so I began to really wrestle with my place there too. And again, that has a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But that was the beginning of us having a hard time being in the same place where church and faith are concerned. And even like, how do we pray? Do we pray together? Mm -hmm. Like. Is the Bible something we talk about? Can we yeah. talk about it? And we that's just, we've been married over two decades now. And at this point, 
I, we, we make a lot of room for each other and respect where each other is coming from and probably share more than not. But it, I think it has meant that we've never, until the Mennonite church, really had a, a church that we saw the same way and wanted to be a part of in the same way. That is fascinating. I have to ask, when it all blew up at New Life, did yeah. she, maybe this is her story to tell, look at you and like, I told you <laughs> something. Well, at that point, we had both for a long time been like, we weren't, we didn't, it had, it had been, when that happened, it had been years since I felt at home at that church and felt supported either of it or by it. In the, even though I kept working for him for many years and we had lots and lots of good friends there, it was complicated because our relational lives, our, our community was in part rooted in that church. And so when the blowout, when the blowout happened, we were still in relationship with all those friends and still are, those are dear friends of ours. And, and uh, I don't know, I guess I would say that like one interesting thing that happened is that all those, a lot of the people who were, we were in relationship with there, they, when that happened, of course, they started to question everything. And they knew that Michaela had been questioning it all along. And so we had a lot of great dinners at our house where people were like, how did you know that something was rotten in the state of Denmark? We ended up having, yeah, I think it. we had already processed our own sense of grief over that ministry and what it was and wasn't years before. And so when that happened, it was just like, yeah, this is going to happen here, this kind of thing, given what it was. That is very interesting. But it was still painful. Yeah. It was still demoralizing and sad and breaking and watching all of our friends. Empathy is not one of my great gifts. Yeah. But I empathize with people who've been hurt by their churches. Yeah. Because it is just a unique kind of pain. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe when... um. When I get further into writing this next book and know what it's about exactly, I'm only, I don't know, 20,000 words into it. But as I get deeper into it, I'm a, and I'm not going to write it fast. It's going to take me a year, That's awesome. I think. And But maybe when I get deeper into it, we can have a focused conversation about it. I will be all ears. Thank you for being here. I hope you get some rest and break from staring at a screen. Yeah, me too. Right. Thank you, Becca. All right. This is awesome. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were encouraged, challenged, or something in between. If you didn't find the answers you'd hoped for, I hope you at least felt like someone else was asking the same questions. Please share the podcast with your friends and check the show notes for more information about my guests. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Moira and Asa, for supporting the podcast with their humor, and Lewis, my husband, for running down to get the power cord every time I forgot it downstairs. I especially want to say thank you to the very talented Rex Stardy for my new original intro and outro music. Joke Break Music is by Pink Zebra. And everybody, thanks for being patient with my little in-house production. I know there's a lot of sound and editing imperfections. I'm learning as I go. So thanks for hanging in there and have a great new day.